see it in our nation all the time, and it seems like as the years go by, it gets more and more intense and more and more severe. And it comes in different forms, right? It comes in disrespect for police officers, for judges, for elected, elected officials, and it even expresses itself in the form of violence against those governing authorities that are over us. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what attitude are we supposed to have towards authority? Over the next two Sundays, you'll see that the Bible clearly answers that question. And the answer to the question is we're supposed to be respectful and obedient to authorities because they function as the agents of God in keeping order in a society. But what are we supposed to do when those authorities require us to violate the word of God? If a governing authority issues some order that clearly requires us to violate God's laws, and the only way, and I mean the only way, that we can follow that ruler's order is to violate the word of God, then we're supposed to obey the word of God and not obey the ruler. Now, that is a very narrow exception to the biblical mandate that we're supposed to obey our rulers. And I want to be very careful in what I'm saying here because I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying, hey, it's cool for us to run around and violate all the laws of the land and just say, well, God's my excuse. But God said it was cool for me to violate the laws of the land. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's a time for civil disobedience. And when we engage in civil disobedience, as the Bible does command at times, then we need to be prepared suffer the consequences, to suffer the punishment from the ruler that we're under. And if we're going to say that the Bible commands us to disobey a ruler, then we better be certain that the Bible says what we think it says. We better be certain that the Word of God clearly conflicts with what that ruler is telling us to do before we go off and say, I'm going to violate your order, ruler, because the, the Bible does command us to obey our rulers. But there's a balance there. We'll look at a number of examples in the Bible where believers obeyed God rather than the ruler that they were under. And then we'll look at a 21st century example of how believers are to deal with the ungodly laws within our land that mandate same-sex marriage. I realize that that is a controversial topic because many in our culture are most offended by God's condemnation of homosexuality, but the Bible tells us to speak the truth, speak it in love, but speak the truth. And the Apostle Paul told young Timothy, shortly before the Apostle, the Apostle Paul was uh, to be executed, he told young Timothy, who was kind of a protege of Paul, in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Paul's point was, Preach the word when it's popular and when it's unpopular. Preach the word when it's liked and when it's disliked. So I want to say up front that we are all sinners. Each one of us is a sinner. And we have no right to get self-righteous about another man's sin because we're sinners also. But at the same time, the Bible tells us to discern right from wrong and to do the right. And so, in that regard, let's talk about this phrase, same-sex marriage, that's made its way into our vocabulary. 
and I use it too because we have to describe it as something. But it's really a misnomer. It's not an accurate term. It's an inaccurate term because God has defined marriage as uniquely heterosexual, as uniquely between two opposite members uh, or, or, or two opposite sex. And God designed it that way because that's his plan. That's his plan. And we'll see more of this over the next two Sundays. But same-sex marriage is an effort to counterfeit God's rich design of the oneness between male and female. The word marriage has been hijacked, just like the word gay was hijacked. The word gay used to mean happy, jolly, 50 years ago, but no one would dare use it that way today because someone's going to misunderstand what you mean. But this redefining of words is part of the marketing campaign, the marketing campaign to legitimize this sin. And we'll see that it's clearly, that the Bible is unequivocal that this is against God's will, but it's this, this redefining of words is part of the marketing campaign to legitimize homosexuality. It's part of the effort to re-educate our culture into the ways of the world and not the ways of God. Get away from the ways of God. And instead, let's get into the ways of the world. That's part of the re-education campaign. It's kind of like the Colorado Civil Rights Commission's order against a baker, a cake artist by the name of Jack Phillips. And Jack is a Christian. And his conscience bothered him. He said, I don't want to support homosexuality, so um, I'm happy to make you guys a birthday cake or a retirement party cake or some other kind of cake, but I don't want to make a cake with two dudes in tuxedos on the top of it. I'm just not comfortable with that because he didn't want to support it. But the state of Colorado said, no, you will get in line just like everybody else. State of Colorado said you violated the law, Mr. Phillips, and the state ordered him to, <coughs> excuse me, to provide his services in terms of cake baking to uh, uh, for same-sex ceremonies and to train, or we could say re-educate, his staff about their obligation to provide cakes. Who knew that frosting and flour and eggs could be so controversial? <coughs> but to provide cakes <coughs> and these baking services for same-sex celebrations regardless of their faith. Their faith is now irrelevant to the analysis the state of Colorado says. And so the order also required him to provide quarterly reports to the state. So four times a year, he's required to provide these reports to the state that say, here's how many cakes I didn't give to folks, and here's the reason I didn't give cakes to folks. The objective there is to be sure that Mr. Phillips has fully eradicated his Christianity from his business and to be sure that Mr. Phillips' staff, one of whom is his mother, to be sure that they have fully eradicated Christianity from their uh, business decisions. You see, our culture has a new God, a new God that our culture celebrates. It's not the God of the Bible. It's humanity. It's we the people. Humanity is the new God of our culture because we've elevated humanity above the God who is, the living God. So our culture now worships the creation of created beings 
rather than the creator himself. But God's into diversity. He takes the diversity of the male and the female and unites them into one flesh. That's the design that God established in Genesis 2.24. The effort of Satan and sinful humanity is to try and reverse God's created order. Turn it on its head is the, uh, is the objective here. But despite our society's obsession, and it really is an obsession, to blur the differences between male and female, and to even try and reverse the differences between male and female, despite that obsession, forgive me for stating the obvious, there are differences between the male and the female. And those physical differences and soul differences are there because God created them. God designed them to be different. God designed male to be different than female. Why? So that they could be united, so that they, those differences could complement one another. So when they're in the whole, when they're made united, wow, you've got a powerful testimony for God. You've got this unit, this whole, that is functioning for God's services, for God's purpose, to serve God. Now, I want to try and be delicate about what I'm going to, about to say, and so hopefully I am. But there's something that's just patently self-evident. It's just so obvious, but our culture isn't interested in it. And it's that the anatomy of the male is designed for the anatomy of the female, and vice versa. But that is a truth that is fundamentally rejected in this whole debate. No one gets into that topic. But it's just so obvious. And, and, And why is it there? Because it's part of the oneness that God designed. God designed the anatomy of the male and the anatomy of the female to be united as one. God designed the soul of the male and the soul of the female to be united as one. Because God wants them to be one flesh. They're more efficient for God's purposes if they're one versus being being separate and not united as a whole. The godly wife enhances the husband. And the godly husband enhances the wife. Satan's objective is to neutralize humanity's effectiveness for God, humanity's service to God. So how does Satan do that? Through sin, through all types of sin. And again, we're all sinners, so we have no right to get self-righteous about another man's sin. We should approach this topic in a humble fashion, not in a holier-than-thou fashion. But what sin does is it prevents the person from being effective for God because it alienates the person for God. Now, God does provide a solution to that through Christ because Christ paid for my sins, your sins, all of humanity's sins, and through Christ, we're able to get out of the slave market of sin because if we believe and trust that Christ paid for our sins, then in that moment of time, we stop being his enemy because he's opposed to sin, his holiness is opposed to sin, we stop being his enemy and we become his daughter or his son. And so we go from being in an antagonism towards God to being in his love. So that is the way that, that God provides us to get out of the slave market of sin. Now, there is an exception to what I just described about the one flesh, the unity of male and female in a marriage, and them being more efficient and effective for God's purposes than if they were separate. And that exception we see in the Apostle Paul himself. It's the exception 